Good morning again. If you will open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read two verses to us and then uh, we'll pray together. Romans chapter 5. By the way, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 942. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in Christ. We rejoice in the fact that we have peace with you because we are justified by faith. Father, we worship you. We acknowledge that you alone are God. There is no other God like you. We bow down to you. We don't bow down to anything else or anyone else. We worship you. And we praise you for your work for us particularly your work for us on the cross, as pictured even in the baptisms that we did today. Father, we praise you. We praise you that you have brought the gospel to us, to us here, that you have uh, drawn us to know you. You've worked in our lives by your Holy Spirit. You've brought salvation. I thank you for your word, and I praise you that you've given it to us. Father, I pray now that you would help us to be attentive to what we're uh, talking about. I pray that you would minister to us even as we discuss ideas in history and events in history and what your word has to say about them. Work in our hearts. I pray that you'd work even now by your spirit to remove from our hearts and our minds the things that would distract us, the things that would keep us from engaging with you, the things that would keep us from, from hearing from your word and from the thoughts of men who've gone before. Father, I pray that you do that by your spirit. Make us sensitive to you. Minister to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever thought about where we came from? Have you thought about uh, where the uh, origins of our faith were? What's the background? What's the backstory behind our beliefs? Have you thought about maybe the traditions that we hold to and where they came from and what the significance is and whether they're legitimate or whether they need, need to be re-examined? Or have you thought about those things? Have you thought about where we came from? The fact is that we all have traditions. We all have a history behind us that extends all the way back to before we were even born. We, we have received traditions, and we carry those traditions on, and we may tweak them, and we may change them, and, and uh, we may communicate them differently, but we have traditions. All of us have traditions. Much of what we are is the result of that history that's gone on behind us. If, uh, if this is your first time at Parkside, we're, we're doing things a little bit differently than we normally do. 
first of all. We just spent about eight months going through the book of Exodus, okay? We're committed to preaching through the Bible. It's normal for us to have the Bible open in front of us, and we're doing this, talking to each other, looking at the Word, and talking about what is there. That's what we normally do. And there will be aspects of that in uh, this series that we're starting right now. But we're starting a series that's about historical events. It's about things that have gone on in the past, and you don't find those events discussed in the Word. They actually took place in like the 16th century. And so uh, we find ourselves in a little bit of an odd situation because we normally have our nose in the book, and we're talking this way, and we intend to get there. However, we want to lay a foundation. We want to lay a foundation of history so that we can understand the context in which we're going to be saying these things from Scripture. So we're starting a new series, and you can see that in your bulletin, and we've called it Reformation 500. Super creative, I know. And it's because 500 years ago, October 31st, was essentially the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. 1517, October 31st, Martin Luther... Um, essentially started the ball rolling on this. There were, there were rumblings beforehand about Reformation, and it certainly continued for a good period of time, but essentially it started on October 31st in 1517, and so that date is coming, right? We're, we're 500 years after that, and so uh, it's a great opportunity for us to reflect on the history of what went on 500 years ago, talk about the ideas that were so important to, uh, to those men and women who lived during that time and then reflect uh, on our own condition in, in light of those truths. And so why are we preaching a series on an historical topic? Well, we, we may say that we're not big on tradition. If I were to ask you those questions face-to-face and say, where does your faith come from? You'd probably hold up your Bible, and you should. And if I were to ask you why we do the things that we do the way we do them, you would probably say, well, it's biblical. And you'd be right, hopefully. But the fact is that we all have tradition. We are recipients of tradition. And in fact, those people who most loudly proclaim they have no tradition are the ones who are most enslaved to their tradition. They don't even recognize that they have it. They act according to it all the time. They don't even know it's there. And so we want to... uh, talk in historical terms about historical events, uh, events that brought into question some of the traditions of the way they, they did things during those days, particularly in regards to salvation, preaching of the word, priesthood, all the stuff that, uh, that, went, that was going on in those times that we're going to talk about today. And we're going to talk about those situations and examine and think about our own traditions, the things that we hold to and the things that we believe and maybe do a little comparison and and kind of examine those traditions. Tradition is not bad, but unexamined tradition can be very dangerous. And particularly unacknowledged tradition can be very, very dangerous. Things that we hold to without even knowing that they're not biblical, they're just the way we've always done things. And so we're preaching a series on an historical era so that we can understand where we came from. We are a Protestant church. What does that mean? So we're going to talk about the history behind what that means. And we're going to look at what sort of doctrinal battles that our our forebears went through in order to give us and communicate to us the Protestant faith that we have. These things were important to them. And and we want to see not just what was important, but how they thought about what was important. 
Maybe it'll help us to think in our context about what we believe, about the things that we hold to. And so that's why we're preaching a series on an historical event or series of events. It's not normal for us. Normally, we would be on verse 2, right? That's how we do things. But with this one, we wanted to talk a little bit about these big ideas. And so that kind of brings us to the question of why study the Reformation in particular? Why the Reformation? Well, first of all, because it's the 500th anniversary of the beginning of it. So it's a kind of a, you know... A neat date to catch, you know, that 500 years have gone by since uh, since Luther nailed the 95 theses on the door at uh, the church there in, in uh, Wittenberg in Germany. Topics that he brought up that he wanted to debate, uh, and and so that that's important. To 500 years, it's an interesting date, but not just that. The Reformation is about a renewal in the people's understanding of what the gospel was. It was a renewal of the people's understanding, Christians' understanding about the Word of God, about grace from God and what that means, about justification and what in the world that is and how it relates to sanctification. And so these are crucial topics. You can see that the things that they spent their lives fighting for and writing about and being being uh, uh, excommunicated from the church and having prices on their heads and all that kind of stuff, they did for good reasons and for good topics. We're talking about gospel stuff. And so these people lived and died for this. And so it is a fitting time for us to go back and, and look at that and revisit those same, uh, those same teachings. You see that the church, the, the Roman Catholic Church had really shifted in its stance over the course of years and over the course of centuries. And they had really shifted in their view and what the gospel was kind of got muddied and what grace was kind of got muddied and what man is like. It all kind of got shifted and changed. And after hundreds of years, there was, there was a great change to such an extent that when Martin Luther got his hands on uh, a Greek New Testament and he read it, he was shocked by what he read because it didn't read like his Latin Vulgate that he had been trained on. And it taught doctrine that was very different from the church where he was a monk. And so he was shocked to find this stuff out. And, and so uh, these ideas are big and they're important. And so for Luther, when he looked at his Greek New Testament and started reading it, he understood there's been a big shift in emphasis and there's been a big shift in meaning of terms and of these doctrines and all that stuff over the course of hundreds of years. And it brought him back to the gospel. And he had to wrestle through these things. And he and the other reformers, Zwingli and Calvin and, and Bullinger and other, others of the, of the reformers, wrestled through these issues. And so I wonder, since 500 years have passed, since these events went on, I wonder if maybe there's been some shift in our theology. I wonder if maybe there's been a change that if, if Luther were to visit our church today and he were magically to be able to understand our language and, and he were able to... Uh, uh, listen to what we preach or, or evangelical churches in America in general, would he, would he agree wholeheartedly or would he say, wow, I see some shift. I see some shift. And so this is a great opportunity for us to examine those things and to talk about those topics and really dig down and see what, what we understand, what we believe about these issues that are so crucial. And so the purpose of our looking at the Protestant Reformation over the next few months is, first of all, we want to understand some of the questions the reformers were asking. We want to understand what's the big deal. So we're Protestant. So what? 
the Reformation was an event in history. Who cares? Right? So we want to understand why we should care and what is the big deal. And so we're going to understand those questions. And not only are we going to understand the questions they were asking, we want to understand the answers they came up with to those questions. How those answers that they came up with differed from the answers that the Roman Catholic Church had been giving for hundreds of years. And so that's the second the second there. And the third one is we want to look at what we believe in those same areas, how we answer those same questions. And we want to see, have we shifted? Do we understand things similarly, differently? Has the course of time had an effect on evangelicalism, on, on, on broadly on Protestantism in North America over the course of the last 500 years? Or are we right on track? So it's an opportunity for us to examine those same topics. And and so today we're going to look at certain uh, theological aspects. This is sort of an introduction to the course. It's an introduction to medieval Roman Catholic theology. Probably you don't spend a whole lot of time pondering medieval Roman Catholic theology. So we're going to do that all in one shot. We're going to talk about some key issues that, that, that will kind of lay the foundation or the groundwork or the trajectory of really what we're going to be talking about for the next uh, 10 weeks, 11 weeks. So we're going to be talking about those key areas and we're going to be looking at what the church at the time taught. What was, what was medieval Roman Catholicism teaching about these different areas? What was important to them? And uh, that's going to help us as we move from understanding history now to looking at what the reformers were talking about and then looking at these issues as we would answer them how we would answer those same questions. So you have an outline there in your bulletin. You finally covered page one and you go to page two and you can see that uh, we have four different areas. And there are a lot of areas that I could talk, that I could talk about uh, when it comes to medieval Roman Catholic theology. Uh, but first of all, that's not my area of expertise. And second of all, we wanted to focus on the ones that were crucial, that were significant for the things that we're going to be talking about as we're looking at the, the Reformation and the ideas of the Reformation uh, throughout this series. And so the first there is grace and merit. You will find, if you were to look through medieval Roman Catholic theology and read their sermons and their books and whatnot, you would find a great deal of discussion of grace. The, the question really, the question of the Reformation has never been about the necessity of grace. Medieval Roman Catholic theology taught that grace was essential. They just defined their terms a little bit differently. The way they talked about was, was, uh, uh, was different than we're used to hearing about. We, we, we tend to talk about grace in different terms than they did. They, they, they would talk about infused grace or infused righteousness. Right? They, they believed that God had to act. They believed that God, working on the human heart, had to act. He had to be involved. He had to bring His grace into the life of a person. And so this idea of infused righteousness means that grace is poured into the life of the person. Beginning at baptism, by the way. So good job. You got started. You got started. God infused some righteousness the way they looked at it. He infused some righteousness. And then, now it's your job to cooperate with that grace, to cooperate with that righteousness that God has put inside you, to assent to it and then to grow into righteousness. Practically to grow into righteousness. And then once you achieved righteousness, that's when good news happened. That's when, uh, that's when justification happens, right? So they looked at it differently. They saw grace as something that God like put a little dab in you and then you had to run with it. And as you ran with it, your life changed 
because you built upon this grace that was infused in you, that was poured into your life, and you became more and more righteous. And thus you attain uh, states uh, when it comes to righteousness later on and things God declares about you, right? But, uh, but after that time of infusion, there is righteousness inherent in you. And so God, in a sense, makes you righteous. He makes you partly righteous, right? And so once you have actually lived that out and people can see, more importantly, God can see that you are righteous, then God puts a stamp of justification on you. And he declares that you are right before God. Okay? All of that language is familiar, but it's just a little different than what we hear, than what we should be hearing. See, they, they believed grace was necessary. They believed grace was necessary. And actually, they worked out, you've heard of the sacraments, right? The seven sacraments of the church that uh, the Roman Catholic Church came up with. First was baptism, which they would baptize infants. Right? And so um, that was the instrumental cause or that was the means of justification. It kind of started then. That's when, that's when grace was poured into your life in a sense, infused into your life. So baptism is the first one. Confirmation is another one. Uh, Holy communion, right? Which is similar to but different than uh, the Lord's Supper, the way we understand it. Uh, so Holy communion was something that you would do regularly and as a result, there would be the grace in your life would be strengthened would in a sense be added to or would be dusted off or would be improved by doing this. And so you can see that, that uh, doing, uh, taking Holy Communion regularly would do that, would, would increase your standing with God in a sense. Another one was penance. Penance. And so what happens is when a person is baptized, they enter into a state of grace. And then when you commit a mortal sin, which they have categories of sin, venial and mortal sin, when you commit a mortal sin... You fall out of that grace, and the way to be entered, the way to be brought back into right standing with God is by penance. Things that you do that the priest assigns to you. It might be giving him up of money, it might be saying of certain prayers, it might be all different kinds of things. It was penance. It was a way for you to get back into that state of, uh, of grace before God. It was to restore you to grace after you've committed a mortal sin. So, you have baptism and confirmation, Holy Communion and penance. And then you've got extreme unction, which is, which is essentially the anointing of you, prayers over you at the time of death, right? So that was kind of an end-of-life thing. Baptism was a beginning-of-life thing. And then you've got these others, uh, particularly Holy Communion and penance, which take place regularly. There were two other uh, um, sacraments that fit into there, and they were alternatives to one another. You really couldn't do both because one was, was matrimony, was marriage, and the other one was ordination. And so you either choose ordination, which required celibacy, so therefore you're not being married, or matrimony, which precluded that you could uh, be ordained. And so, so those were the sacraments. Well, these were all means of improving or increasing or building upon or cooperating with the grace of God within you. And so the more you did them, particularly penance and Holy Communion, the better off you were, right? And so you're increasing your standing essentially before God. So by performing all these sacraments, the person demonstrated to God that in a way he deserved a certain kind of merit from God. It wasn't perfect merit, but he deserved a certain kind of merit. And maybe, maybe God would look at your efforts, your, your genuine hearted efforts to serve God. He would look at those and maybe he would look with favor and he would, he would grant you, um, he, he would declare that you were actually righteous, right? And so he would declare you to be justified, maybe. So is that good news? It's not good news to me. It doesn't sound like good news to me because, uh, first of all, it made it about works. 
And then, second of all, it said your works aren't me aren't going to be good enough, but perhaps God will grade on a curve. There's a chance that he might be pleased with the effort that you put forth. He might not, but he might. And so, where's your assurance? Where is your peace with God from Romans 5? It's a problem. There was no assurance, and the life of Martin Luther bears this out. As we get to talk about Luther more, we can talk about how sincere he was in his faith and how he spent hours a day in confession, confession before his his confessor of, of his sins. He was a monk, lived in a monastery, and he would spend like six hours a day in confession, right? What kind of trouble was a monk in a monastery getting into that would require six hours a day of confession? But he was so sincere and he so much wanted to please God and he, he strived with everything he was worth and he had no assurance. No assurance. And that was the result. I said before that um, the Reformation was never about the necessity of grace. Everybody agreed grace was necessary. The Reformation was about the sufficiency of of grace. Is, does the gospel have to do with God doing his part and you kicking in the rest? Or is the gospel about the part that God did? That was the question of the Reformation. Not about the necessity of grace, about the sufficiency of grace. Does God actually accomplish salvation or does he not? Is salvation by the mutual, the, the, the work together of God and man to bring it about? Yeah, sure, the grace of God is included in there. It's up to you to, to take the ball into the end zone. Or is it about the accomplished work of Christ? That was what the Reformation was about. And so understanding of grace and the understanding of merit at the time is important for us to understand. That's the first theological topic. The second one is related, of course, justification and sanctification. All right, we, we talked about these in our Sunday school class uh, last semester. We talked about justification being declared to be, it's a, it's a judicial declaration, a legal declaration by God that you are right in His sight. That's, that's our understanding of what justification is. That's, that's uh, what we inherited from the Reformation. We'll talk about that plenty. Sanctification is the ongoing outworking into our lives practically of that justification or uh, as we become more and more like Christ in our actual walk in ways that you can experience about me and vice versa. And so justification and sanctification. So those are kind of what the two words mean. Well, listen to uh, Thomas Aquinas' pattern of justification, okay? It's really a four-step pattern, so it's pretty short. You know, four easy steps. We can make a sermon on that. The first is the infusion of grace. Okay, so grace is infused. It's poured into your life, right? When God begins to work in a heart, He pours or infuses grace into that person. And He actually changes that person from within so that the person has a spark of righteousness, a spark of goodness in there. As, as one theologian or, or a historian put it, he said the person who was made righteous by Christ became a better human being than he or she had been before. So God works, plants a spark, which brings growth, and now you become a better person. That's step one. Okay. Step two is the movement of the free will of God, or excuse me, the free will of man directed toward God through faith. So, so there's grace in my life, and now as I cooperate with it, 
God fans that into flame. I'm building upon that. I'm taking the ball into the end zone in a sense. God puts a little spark there and then I work and I do it and I cooperate with it. And so my free will, because I chose to cooperate with God, means that, that, uh, that I am growing. I'm bringing about growth in my life. That's step two. Step three is the movement of the free will directed against sin. Okay, so I'm, I'm, God has put a spark in my life. I'm responding to that spark because it, that's a really good idea. I'm responding in free will. I'm moving towards God while at the same time I'm fighting against sin. And if you remember the seven sacraments, what's the one that fights against sin is penance. And so your life would be characterized by penance. Characterized by penance. And so every time you commit uh, a sin, particularly an egregious sin, you will do penance as a result of that, right? And if you would ask Thomas Aquinas, where does justification happen in here? It's not step one. It's more like step two, step three. It's somewhere along the line when you've achieved, when you've acquired, that's when justification happens. Okay? So, the way they were looking at at justification and sanctification was exactly backwards to the way we look at justification and sanctification. Essentially, what you're doing is you're responding to God and becoming more sanctified in your life. Once you have achieved a certain level of sanctification, becoming more like Him, becoming more righteous in your life, God looks at you, says, good job, and declares you to be just before God. He justifies you before God. The Bible teaches, from Romans chapter 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ since we, we have been justified by faith. Justified over here by faith. Christ died to save sinners. I am justified by faith. And so when I trust, I'm justified. I'm declared to be righteous before God. Right here. Have I been sanctified yet? No. And you guys are looking at me saying, no, you haven't, Brennan. <laughs> Justified here, and then the outworking is sanctification as we progress through life. God declares the sinner to be just by faith. And so that's exactly what happens in Protestant theology. So when you, when you compare what the Reformers were saying versus what the Roman Catholic Church was saying, you can see that it's turned on its head. The Roman Catholic position of the day was, was respond to the work of God, respond, respond, be sanctified, be sanctified. Once you achieve a certain level of sanctification, you get the stamp of justification. Good job. The Bible teaches, I'm a lousy sinner, I'm rotten, and God justifies me by faith. Justified, declared righteous before God because of what He did. And the outworking... So the first thing is justification, and the outworking is sanctification, and that's exactly backwards of uh, of the way Thomas Aquinas and and uh, he was a he was a very famous uh, Roman Catholic, probably the most famous maybe uh, Roman Catholic theologian, kind of of the age. So they they flipped those two things around, and the reformers recognized this, and they they recognized that that only leads to discouragement. Because when have you achieved the level of sanctification that means God is going to say, good job? When did you pass the test? At what point were you justified or were you, were you sanctified to the point where God can justify you? You don't know. Your priest doesn't know. The Pope doesn't know. Nobody knows. 
So keep working because maybe you'll get there. The reformers hated that. They hated that. They said, they, they read Romans 5 and many other passages. They saw that it's exactly flipped. God justifies sinners by faith. And so justification and sanctification were exactly flipped in medieval uh, Roman Catholic theology. Thirdly, purgatory and indulgences. Okay? These, are, these are not words that we use a lot. We use all the other words so far. We use quite a bit. We don't use purgatory and indulgences all that much. But basically, the idea of purgatory is, uh, was developed by the, by the uh, Roman Catholic Church. It had to do with the idea that, that nearly every Christian dies with some sort of sin that they've not dealt with. It's not been, they've not been purified of. And so, the idea of purgatory is a, a dealing with that, a being purified of that sin after death. So it's kind of a time or a place or an event that happens between your death and between uh, when you are brought into heaven. And so that's the idea of purgatory. And so the fires of purgatory were to purify you. They were to cleanse you of the remaining sin. How long did that take? Uh, there was discussion about that. Uh, but, but that's where the vast, vast majority of Christians went. The saints went maybe directly to heaven. But everybody else uh, would be in purgatory. And so... Um, that's the idea of purgatory. Well, it just so happens when you, when you keep that idea in mind and think about all your loved ones who have passed away and you would know that if, if you believed according to uh, the, the doctrine of this time, those, those people are in purgatory. Those dear ones, the beloved, are in purgatory. They're, the, the fires of purgatory are purifying them of their sin. That's a terrible, frightening thing. And you'd be scared to death, by the way, right? You'd be very scared. Well, there's another doctrine that goes with that. And that's the idea of uh, something they call the treasury of merit. You see, the way they looked at it, Jesus' blood, one drop of Jesus' blood could have sufficed for the atonement of all of mankind ever. But he didn't just bleed one drop, did he? He bled copiously, and so there were lots of extra drops of blood. There was extra merit from Christ that was available. It was not used up in the atonement. On top of that, you have the saints and the merit, the extra merit that they had, and Mary had extra merit. And so there's, there's this treasury, there's a bank of extra merit that, that those people didn't use. And so the church had that treasury at their disposal. And so here the church has this treasury of merit at their disposal. And over here, your loved ones are in purgatory. For how long? You don't know. A year? A hundred years? A thousand years? Ten thousand years? There was debate on that. And so what happens is the church said, you know what? We have this treasury of merit. We, we are willing to give you some of that merit and apply it to the life of your, of your loved one who is dead and in purgatory so that uh, we can cut off some time for them in purgatory so that they can go to heaven more quickly for a fee. For a fee. So you could just buy this. The church has this. And they will write you a document called an indulgence. And you, you can purchase this indulgence. By the way, the church could have given that for free. That very rarely happened. It was, it was for sale. And by the way, that's, that's how St. Peter's was built in Rome, was through the sale of indulgences largely. That's how they raised their money. And so that's the practice of indulgence. And, and this really, really made Luther angry for various reasons. Theologically, it's said that the Pope had authority even after death. They were saying Pope had, the Pope had authority even into the afterlife. 
And he, he saw that as, as, uh, as, as being unbiblical, as being heretical. That made him very angry. But then this guy named Johann Tetzel uh, came to town to where Luther lived. And he was preaching to the people. And he was a, an impassioned preacher. And he would, he would uh, preach to people in such a way that he would bring to mind the loved one that you lost and your dear parents and, and all that stuff. And he would, he would say, and they're, 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 they're agonizing in, in purgatory right now. Can't you just hear their screams for you that won't you, won't you just buy the indulgence so that they can be set free from purgatory and into heaven? And if you'll just pay a few gold coins, you can have that. And, and why would you begrudge your dear lost loved one just a few gold coins when you could get them into heaven? And he was making a killing. And he was selling these things right and left, and Martin Luther was furious about it. And so the, the practice of indulgences really, uh, really angered him and, and kind of was what was spurred him to make, make his, uh, uh, write up his 95 theses, a list of disagreements with the church that he was going to debate, uh, be, be willing to debate publicly. So that's the idea of, of indulgences and, and um, purgatory. And, and so that, that's kind of a, a very broad generalization of what they what they taught on that topic. Fourthly, I want to look at the idea of authority. And I'll just I'll just look at this briefly. The church, the Roman Catholic Church recognized that the Bible is authoritative. Scripture is authoritative. Good. All right, so far so good. Okay. However, alongside scripture, there was also a tradition that had been passed on orally, they taught from Jesus to Peter and on down through all the all the popes had been passed on through the church. It was not written down. It was just tradition, but it was equally authoritative. You and I don't have access to it because we're not we're not church leaders. It was really only the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church that had access to that that tradition, right? And so that was equally authoritative because it was also the words of Jesus. It was the, the traditions passed down by Jesus, um, and they would bring it out, you know, at certain times when it was relevant, and they would talk about what the tradition was. Tradition was authoritative. So now you've got two, two authorities. You've got Scripture and you've got tradition, and they're equally authoritative. Well, enter the picture, the third authority, and that's the church, the magisterium, as they called it. God had given the church authority to interpret the Scripture, and, as you can already see, God had entrusted the tradition to the church. And so the church actually was the arbiter of both. Right? And so... Though there were actually technically three legs, if, if you will, of authority within the Roman Catholic Church. You had scripture and you had tradition alongside that. And you had the church alongside that. Which one communicated both of the other two? The church did. So in reality, it was the church that had ultimate authority. And when Martin Luther read his Bible, he didn't see that. And when the reformers asked questions about justification and sanctification and which order do they go in and how does that all happen and when they, when they read about purgatory in, uh, in the theology of the Catholic Church, when they read about indulgences and they heard Tetzel uh, preaching and all that stuff and they, they went to their Bible and they got one answer and then they went to their church and they got another answer and they were not the same. How do you work with that? How do you work with that? And so as a result of that, there, there was a, a loud cry amongst the reformers of sola scriptura. The Bible alone is our infallible and sufficient guide, rule for life and practice. Not the church, the Bible. Not tradition, the Bible. And beyond that, because, you know, the, the church, aren't you still requiring the church to interpret it for you? Well, there was a, a clear teaching throughout the reformers of what's, what's called 
perspicuity or the, the clarity of the Bible. The Bible is written in such a way that you can understand. It's not mysterious requiring some mysterious person to interpret it for you. It's there for you to understand. And so sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. The only, the only unfailing, infallible, sufficient rule for life and practice is the Bible. And so that the, the issue of authority was a major issue and, uh, and still is an issue. I've listened to debates between, between uh, uh, modern uh, Protestants and Roman Catholics, and it still comes down to this same thing. Who's the authority? Who's the authority? And the Protestant says it's sola scriptura, and that it's understandable by all of us. And so, you know, Woody and I and, and, and Chris, we get up and preach, and we, we interpret the Bible for you. But it, it's, it's not a mystery. We're not... We're not bringing something out of the hidden depths that you don't have access to and showing you what it is and then going back into the hidden depths. That's why we have this and that's why we point to this. And, and, and I ask you and we would ask you that if, if we preach something sometime and you're like, I didn't see that there or I don't get that there or I read my Bible differently, come to us. Because we are not the authority. The Bible is the authority over us. And that was a big deal for the reformers. And so as we think about 500 years and we think about the history of the Reformation and we're going to be talking about uh, the different issues that are brought up and, and, uh, and, and, and talk about these very important central issues. I wanted you to have a background. Uh, what was the backdrop? What was the context in which these things were being discussed? And so that's the purpose for bringing up these particular issues. Now, these were issues going on in the 15th and 16th century, but you can see that they affect the gospel. They affect the gospel. And so I want us to pull the gospel out and hold it here and look at it and examine it and see what Scripture tells us about it so that we would understand the gospel. And so here we are. Today is a day of communion. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's a celebration of the gospel. Celebration of the gospel. We'll probably get around to talking about the the uh, uh, the Eucharist and, and things like that it's it's it has very different significances in Roman Catholic theology. For us, it is a picture. It is a remembrance. It is crucial and it is vital and it is commanded in Scripture, and it points to the accomplished, finished work of Christ. The finished work of Christ. Let's go back to Ro- Romans chapter five. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is an accomplished work. We have been justified by faith. Those who are in Christ have already been justified. They didn't walk their way up the ladder. They didn't climb. They didn't scrabble. They didn't. They were justified by faith. And so if I could have the men go ahead and... uh, come up for communion. We're going we're gonna to celebrate communion together. We're going to talk about the completed work of Christ because that is what we celebrate. Essentially, in, in Roman Catholic theology, each time the bread is broken, each time the Eucharist is served, Christ is re-crucified. 
He's re-crucified. And when we look at communion, we see the completed work of Christ and we see what God has done on our behalf in Christ and we celebrate this. This doesn't infuse us with some kind of grace. This doesn't uh, cause us to be more acceptable in God's eyes. This is not a step up the ladder. This is, this is not a re-crucifixion of Christ. This is a remembrance of what He has done. And so, as we, as we come to the bread... Pass this out. As we come to the bread, it points us to the body of Christ. It points us to His body. He offered Himself on the cross for us to pay that penalty once and for all. And He was, he was beaten, and He was bruised, and He was torn, and His body was broken. And He did that for us. And so we, we celebrate this communion together. We celebrate the taking of bread and the taking of the cup together to remember what has been done for us. And this is a beautiful picture and is a central picture of what is different between the theology that we were talking about from, from the, the 15th and 16th century Roman Catholic Church to, to what we celebrate, to Protestant theology, to what we see in Scripture, the completed work of Christ. And so we're going we're gonna to partake together in a few moments of the bread. And, uh, and so before we do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us and give God glory for the completed work of Christ. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the completed work of Christ. I thank you for Jesus willingly going to the cross. He wasn't a martyr. He wasn't dragged there against his will. He could have broken free, but he went there on purpose according to the plan, the perfect plan and foreknowledge of God, went to the cross, gave up His body to be broken for me, that that the penalty that I owe because of my sin could be laid upon Him. And He could be put to death in my place, that He could be punished for me, that I might have forgiveness of sins and that I might have the righteousness of Christ applied to me. And so as we celebrate communion, as we partake together, pray that you would draw our thoughts to you. I pray that the thoughts that are in our minds now, uh, maybe even remembrances of sin we've committed this week or, or things that, have been, that we've been harboring against others, that we, would, that we would lay all that aside, that we would confess that before you, that instead we would seek Christ and we would rejoice in his completed work on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.